This is me. Who is me? Okay, go ahead. Hey, and Nachum. He hit something. Okay. Slow. Okay. I'm going to get rid of the snores. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. The uh, the launching of a book is uh, always a personal experience. Uh, this book uh, was uh, three years in the making. And uh, much of the book has been written from memory because uh, my eyesight is not what it was anymore, Baruch Hashem. And uh, I'd like to thank uh, the people who helped me and edit it and who found the photographs for it. It has remarkable illustrations. Uh, and Art Scroll made a beautiful book. So I appreciate it all greatly. There are two basic issues that the book addresses. And these two issues uh, are uh, at the forefront of Jewish life today. Uh, the first issue is, how did it happen that after uh, millennia, of Jewish life, of observance, of tradition, of Jewish values. The Jewish people stood up to the Greeks and stood up to the Romans and stood up to the Byzantines and stood up to the Roman Catholic Church and to all of the persecutions and discrimination. The, the Jewish people never wavered. How did it happen that in the 19th century, a substantial portion, if not even the majority of the And off. Okay, now they should hear him. Now they hear you. Okay, if you turn the zoom, the zoom on, they start again. <laughs> I'm not going to start again. <laughs> so the first issue is what happened that in the 19th century, such a uh, large amount of the Jewish people deserted their faith. 
The second issue is, what was the response of tradition, of orthodoxy, so to speak, to this event? What was the reaction to it? How did it change the Orthodox world, the traditional Jewish world? And those are and were the two main issues that uh, I attempted to explore in the book. Now, the first chapter of the book deals with the background story, which is very important. What happened in the uh, 1700s already that led to this uh, tremendous crisis? So one thing that has to be borne in mind is that Jews are affected by the outside world. As much as we want to believe that we are insular and we can protect ourselves, and that who cares what the outside world does or says, the truth of the matter is that we are not an island unto ourselves. And therefore, what happens in the outside world certainly affects us, and the attitude of the outside world towards us certainly affects how we behave. So in the 1700s, Europe underwent a transformation. It was the age of enlightenment, the industrial revolution, beginning of what we call the modern era, modernity, democracy, uh, religion lost generally lost its hold on the people. And as Christianity weakened, so that affected us as well. And the modernity had new ideas. The French Revolution uh, was uh, equality, fraternity, liberty, noble ideas that had nothing to do with religion. Until then, all noble ideas were religious ideas. Now you had noble ideas that had nothing to do with, not only nothing to do with religion, the French Revolution was an anti-religion revolution. And you had great advances in science, astronomy, even medicine, which remained pretty primitive till our time, was a new world. And in the new world, religion played a lesser role than it had for millennia. Then there was the idea of the rise of a secular religion. Uh, Marx in the 1840s uh, had a great effect 
We're going to build the perfect new world. <laughs> and uh, Marx uh, declared that the perfect new world had to be built on the basis of atheism. Now, Jews like a perfect new world. Anyone that promises will have Jewish support because Jews are messianic by nature. Part of our belief system. Every day I wait for the Messiah. And he's sure to come. And the messianic world, well, all problems will be solved. There'll be no poverty, there'll be no war, there'll be no disputes. Everybody will have what they want. So when Marx said that he wants to build a society where everybody will contribute according to their abilities and everyone will receive according to their needs, well, what more of a perfect world could there be than that? But the price for the brave new world was atheism because he said that religion uh, divides, it destroys, it prevents this new world from coming into being. So the Jews were faced with this dilemma. You want the perfect new world or don't you? If you do, and you have to discard your faith, or at least the observance of the faith as it had been over the many centuries of the diaspora of Jewish life previous to that. Then you had other ideas that entered in the this century. First of all, there were great divisions within the Jewish world itself. The Hasidic movement was a great revolution. Begun in the 1730s, it swept all of Eastern Europe, the exception of uh, Germany and of uh, Lithuania, parts of Belarus, but otherwise the Ukraine, Poland, most of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, became Hasidic. The Hasidic movement undermined the structure of the Jewish world of its time. The rabbis were no longer as important as rebbes. Spirituality reigned. Practical everyday life was governed by a different method. And even though the Hasidic movement revitalized the Jewish people and it became the bulwark of orthodoxy, it weakened it initially. And uh, we all know there's no fight like a family fight. So it split families, it split communities, it split areas of the Jewish world. Uh, bad things were done. 
each side, uh, the zealots on each side of the argument stopped at nothing. And that weakened the whole structure. It's hard to say that you represent God <clears throat> or that you're doing holy things by uh, informing against other Jews to the government or by actual physical violence against other Jews. So even though you're doing it for the sake of heaven, you're doing it for the most noble purposes possible. It weakens the whole structure. Then, beginning in the 19th century, uh, the ghetto walls began to crumble, especially in Western Europe, Germany, France, and England. Jews somehow had the ability to get out of the situation that they were in. Now, until then, the intermarriage almost didn't exist in the Jewish world. The intermarriage rate was less than 2%. But that was because the non-Jew would not marry the Jew. It was a disgrace for a Christian family to have Jews marry into it. So if the non-Jews won't marry the Jews, there's no problem of intermarriage. That changed. The non-Jew maybe didn't want that his daughter should marry the shoemaker from Schnippenschock. But if you're talking about marrying Lord Rothschild's son, that's something to consider. So as the Jews advanced in society, intermarriage became possible. Because the Christian world changed and it changed in its ideas towards the Jews as well. <clears throat> so you had in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the edict of tolerance that allowed Jews to become citizens. Jews could live in Vienna. They could become great musicians. Now, don't get me wrong, anti-Semitism is rife. Gustav Mahler, the great Jewish composer and conductor of the, uh, he wanted to be the musical director of the Viennese Philharmonic Orchestra, which is even today, one of the great orchestras in the world. And he never was allowed the position because of the fact that he was Jewish. So he traveled to New York and he became the musical director of the New York Philharmonic, where he gained his great reputation. And then he came back. And when he came back, he converted to Christianity in order to get the job of being the musical director of the Viennese Philharmonic. But even when he did that, 
the Philharmonic sabotaged him because they never played well for him when he was the conductor. But you had Jews that rose to prominence. So together with the anti-Semitism was the growth of the Jewish community. The mayor of Vienna, Karl Ueger, and the Nazis. But he was a practical mayor. He did a good job. He had many Jews that worked with him. So the Jews saw a new era dawning. They could get out of the ghetto. They could be the musical director. They could somehow reach. And then there was the great change in the Jewish world brought about by immigration. Three million Eastern European Jews picked up and left. Most went to North America. Some went to South America. Quarter million went to the United Kingdom. But they picked up and left. Now, you know that when uh, all of us know that moving is not easy. Even when it's voluntary and even when it's smooth. And even when the Bolshevik at uh, the uh, immigration here in Israel smiles at you, it's not easy. You're a foreigner. It's not your language. It's not your society. And the indigenous population always looks at foreigners and aliens Askance with a negative eye. Nevertheless, you have this enormous Jewish immigration. And most of the Jews who immigrated found it difficult to keep their Jewish practices. In the United States, economically, if you didn't come in, on Saturday, don't come in on Monday. It was a six-day work week. Couldn't survive otherwise. I remember yet as a child in my father's shul in Chicago. We're talking the early 1940s, not the 1800s. That there were 750 men that came to David in the first minion in the Hashkoma Minion on Shabbos morning. Now today, the Hashkoma Minion is holy. But then the Hashkoma Minion meant that you davened, and then you got on the streetcar and you went to work. And eventually their children and grandchildren did not come to any minion. So the question of modernity faced them. There's one other issue that I want to touch on, and that was nationalism. The 
empires of the world, Britain, France, Germany, Russia, Austria, Hungary, all colonized countries throughout Asia, Africa, Africa and Europe as well. But these countries that they took over all wanted to be independent. They did not want to be part of the great mother country. This was especially true in the Balkans. That's what caused World War I. Serbia, Croatia, Slovenia. They didn't want to be part of the uh, Austrian Empire. So they revolted. You had uh, terrible results. Greece broke off from Turkey. The Ottoman Empire started to fall apart, became the sick man of Europe. So the Jewish people also were affected by nationalism. So what was the Jewish nationalism? So originally, it was the uh, students of the Gon of Vilna, the Balshemtov, and of certain Sephardi communities and Yemenite communities that somehow decided they're going to move and settle in the land of Israel. Now, why didn't this happen earlier? No one knows. And then by the end of the century, Theodore Herzl had created the Zionist movement. And the Zionist movement represented Jewish nationalism. It did not represent Jewish religion. And therefore, many felt that it was an existential threat to Jewish religion because you were going to substitute nationalism for commandments, for traditions, for values. And especially became complicated when the Zionist movement allied itself in the main with socialist ideas, with Marxism, with kibbutzim. The kibbutz was the perfect communist organization that ever existed. The Jews were one. The Jews were the only ones that made it work. Doesn't exist today anymore. But for almost 100 years, you had thousands of people willing to own nothing, all for a higher cause. So all of these forces combined to put traditional Judaism on the defensive. And then there's Darwin's theory of evolution, other scientific theories, the development of archeology, span the discussion of the age of the world, all of which served to further undermine the basic ideas that Judaism represented. 
Now in Germany, which was the most advanced and cultured and tolerant society of the time. So uh, the Jews created something called Reform Judaism. Reform, as the name implies, came to change Judaism. If you saw Salanter said in his famous description, he said that the difference between the Musser movement that he created and reform is that the Musser movement came to change Jews and reform came to change Judaism. So reform uh, denied everything. Now, today's reform is not the reform of the 1800s. The people from the 1800s would uh, look aghast. Uh, reform uh, Judaism, the 1800s was Saturday, he was on Sunday. And uh, nobody wore a kippah, nobody wore a talit, and nobody, uh, nothing was in Hebrew. And you couldn't mention Zion or Jerusalem. It was, it was radical. The uh, great proponent of Reform Judaism, Abraham Geiger, was a classmate of Samson Rafael Hirsch. And they both studied in the yeshiva of the Chacham Bernays in Hamburg. So Hirsch, you know, often it happens. You sit next to somebody in the classroom. You get the same education. You're both brilliant. One goes the one way and one goes to the other way. In fact, Geiger ended up living in Frankfurt. He ended up living in the same apartment building as Hirsch. He wanted to come visit Hirsch, his old classmate. Hirsch would not allow him to cross the threshold. So what was the response to reform? Well, the traditional response in the ancient world and in the medieval world, the heretics was harem, to put people in banishment. It's what happened to Spinoza in Amsterdam in the 1600s. It was a powerful weapon because you were dependent upon the society. The person harem, so we would not have a place to be buried. He would not have, he would not, he would not be accepted anywhere. No one would deal with him. And the uh, harem was used ex very extensively by the Catholic Church. The Pope excommunicated, excommunicated all of the Protestants. And excommunication was a potent weapon. Because if you were in harem here, you're going to be in harem there too, upstairs. 
So the first response to reform was Chayrim. Don't have anything to do with them. However, Chayrim works when you put into Chayrim a minority, people who are weaker than you, people who are fewer than you are. You cannot put the majority into Chayrim because you're in Chayrim. You're not effective. And that was the problem that was faced, especially in German Jewry, because uh, in the 19th century, 90% of German Jewry was reformed. And reform allowed intermarriage, even though it claimed that it was the bastion against intermarriage. So you had uh, Hirsch developed his idea of Torim Derech Eretz, which co-opted a lot of the ideas of modernity into traditional Jewish life. And in effect, Hirsch said, look, I'll make you as good a German as the reform guy is, but you don't have to give up any religion to be as good a German. So you'll have uh, a sitter in German and you'll have a chumash with a translation in German and commentary in German. And you'll read Goethe and Schiller and you'll be a doctor and you'll be a lawyer and you'll be observant. And he created his own uh, kehila in Frankfurt. Uh, which was outside the main kehila. The main kehila was run by the reform, but they allowed uh, the Orthodox uh, many benefits. Uh, the uh, reform kehila said, yes, you can continue to have kosher food. You can continue to have Orthodox burials. The reform was convinced that the Orthodox were gonna disappear which has been the general attitude of the non-Orthodox over the last 150 years. Ben-Gurion said it famously. He said, Chakei Odor. Let's just wait one more generation. Why should we fight? One more generation, they'll be gone. He never imagined B'nai Barak. B'nai Barak never imagined B'nai Barak. So, Torim Derech Eretz, Bamberger, Rabbi Nutten Bamberger, the Alalevi, he said, well, uh, the reform are the majority, so we're going to work with them. We will not make a separate gehila. We'll try and keep the unity of the Jewish people. And uh, maybe we'll have an influence upon them. In Eastern Europe, so the reform were very strong in Austria and the Hungary, Romania. It was different guises. They called themselves by different names. 
and call themselves reform. One of the great advantages of the left and the secular is that they have always chosen the vocabulary of the debate. We have that today. The left is progressive. The right is conservative. So automatically you pin the pejorative label upon those that oppose you. We're progressive. And there are countless other examples such as that. And uh, this split uh, existed throughout the Austro-Hungarian Empire as well. So you had the Sam Sofer, who was the Rov in Bratislava at Brezhborg, who famously uh, had the slogan of we're not going to do anything new. But the truth is that he himself, uh, he spoke German, he wrote in German. He was the official rabbi for the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But he established a great yeshiva in Pressburg, which was the difference between him and Hirsch. Hirsch never made a yeshiva. Frankfurt never had a yeshiva. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Chassam Sofer and his uh, disciples and his yeshiva became the bulwark against reform. And they, uh, they went out of their way to make sure that they would not imitate the reform in any way possible. Some sofa said, for instance, that you weren't allowed to pray in the synagogue that did not have at least three rows of seats in front of the central bimba. Because in the Reformed temples, they only had the front altar, etc. He said you couldn't get married in a shul because the reform got married in synagogues and temples. All sorts of other things that to us today don't look to be fundamentals in Jewish religion, but nevertheless were the weapons in which the battle was fought. In Eastern Europe and Lithuania, the response was Reb Chaim Valozhin created the yeshiva system. It was a uh, really a revolutionary educational system. I mean, he created the university for the study of Torah, an intellectual uh, hotbed of ideas. So the yeshivas many times produced the great rabbis and the great rabbinic leaders of the Jewish people, but it also produced communists atheists, Zionists, because the yeshiva was intellectual. If you had a good mind, that's where you went. 
And uh, as I mentioned before, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter created the Musa movement. In effect, he said a lot of what our critics say about us is true. So we have to dress better, have to speak better, we have to behave better, we have to live up to the standards of the Torah. And uh, the war between the Hasidim and their opponents died out because they had now had a common enemy. And therefore, they had to adjust to each other. So of Yitzhak of Alojan, of Chaim's son, and the Tzemach Tzedek, who was the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, worked uh, in, in accordance with one another to ameliorate the decrees of the Tsar to help build the Jews under uh, the Russian Empire, both physically and spiritually. In the exile in the United States, So again, in America, Orthodox Jewry concentrated on building synagogues, not schools. That was its downfall. So you had the enormously beautiful synagogues that were completely traditional and Orthodox, and they had thousands of people who attended them but the children and grandchildren were lost. They went to the American public school, which was the melting pot then. Today it's even worse. They had no Jewish values. And uh, America would prove to be uh, that Jews could be very affluent, could make a lot of money. Not everybody knows how to handle money well. The Talmud says, Yisrael. Jewish people do better with less than with more. Now, uh, a yeshiva was formed in the United States in 1896, which eventually became Yeshiva Shabbat Yitzchok Hanan, which eventually became Yeshiva University. In 1903, uh, Yeshiva Chaim Berlin was created in Brooklyn. In 1919, my grandfather helped found the yeshiva in Chicago, which still exists until today. But these yeshivas were meant to produce rabbis. And they had small number of students, though they had great teachers. And uh, 
before the First World War, Dr. Revel became the head and he revolutionized American Jewry. He was a great person, a great scholar. And his vision was that he was going to go Hirsch better. He was going to create a yeshiva, but a yeshiva with Derech Eretz. They called it Mada, with science. With, eventually, he created a yeshiva college, which Dr. Belkin turned into Yeshiva University. Now, what is interesting is that there was another institution that was founded at the same time, the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. And it was financed by Jacob Schiff, one of the great American Jewish philanthropists. And it originally was an Orthodox institution. In fact, uh, there were negotiations in the early 1900s that Yeshiva University and the Jewish Theological Seminary should unite. And the negotiations fell through on the basis of the fact of whether or not Mordechai Kaplan would be accepted as one of the teachers. Because even then he was very radical. But out of that grew the conservative movement. The conservative movement, as the name implies, was there to conserve Judaism. It saw itself as against reform. It would take a watered-down orthodoxy and preserve the Jewish people in that way. All of the teachers in the seminary were great scholars, the great Talmudic scholars. So the uh, quip was that the Jewish Theological Seminary was blessed with an Orthodox family, an Orthodox faculty to produce conservative rabbis to serve a reform laity. There was a lot of truth in that. What ended up is that the conservatives became the reform. And what ended up is that both of them are in serious trouble today. So in the 1800s, reform was an existential threat to orthodoxy. It no longer is. And look at the things the reform want. They want film, except they want them on women. But whoever imagined that they want film? They want the Kota Barovi, whoever imagined that? It's a confusing situation. But they are no longer an existential threat to orthodoxy. We're not afraid that uh, 
that that we're going to become reformed. And finally, uh, the book deals with Eretz Israel, with what happened here. Now, the book purposely ends in 1940, first Second World War, just before the Shoah, because what happened in the Second World War is the turning point in all of Jewish history. Affected everyone, turned everyone in different ways. But if we want to examine what the defense against the secularization of the Jewish people, that we have to look at that century of 1820 to 1940. And by looking at it, I think country by country, as the book does, so then we get an overall picture of different reactions. It was never one size fits all. There never was one answer. Because there was never anyone that all of them ever worked completely. They all had success, but they all had weaknesses as well. So that's what the book is about. And I hope you enjoy reading it. Before you read it, you have to buy it, which is very important. So if tomorrow at uh, 6.30, uh, Rabbi Amsel and I will be here, quarter to six, to pick up uh, books if we're